Hello again, boxing fans. Welcome to episode number 109 of The Neutral Corner. I am Michael Montero for Boxing Monthly Magazine and BoxingMonthly.com. New February issue of Boxing Monthly is out in stores, so check that out. Uh, before we get started with some news and notes here, guys, I uh, want to give another uh, quick reminder and a uh, just a request from you guys. If you could go to podcast app, iTunes, and find the Neutral Corner podcast and give us a review, give us a rating, follow, subscribe, all of that. We're also on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher. Please go to those platforms and give us a review, give us a rating. I don't care if you copy and paste the same one sentence review for all of them. It helps us uh, get higher, you know, up the scale. So you guys know we've been on YouTube now for uh, a couple years, going on three years, but we're brand new to the podcast world with this thing. So let's get the, the ratings and all that stuff beefed up. Please, please, please go there and do that if you can and spread the word about the podcast. Okay, let's get into news and notes. And, and obviously the biggest news of today, Canelo Golovkin, the rematch is official. They announced it, Golden Boy Promotions and uh, Tom Loeffler, they, all, they announced it on social media. It was actually kind of strange the way it was announced. And I kind of have mixed feelings about it. Um, yeah, my phone going crazy. My phone's been going nuts since the fight was announced with a bunch of people asking me about where it's going to go. That's the next thing I was going to talk about. But the way they announced this whole thing, uh, a little odd to me. I don't quite understand it. Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, he put out a tweet. He did a, a little video with his phone while he was working out and posted a, a, that on his page, tweeted it. And at the time I'm recording this, it's only got like a thousand retweets. Now he's got like 12 million followers on Twitter. You'd hope that the thing would have tens of thousands of retweets. He only tweeted it a couple hours ago, but man, you'd hope it'd have more of a response, right? But it was announced the fight in the middle of the day on a Monday, kind of nondescript day, you know, I don't quite understand the significance of it. You just had the opening HBO boxing broadcast uh, this Saturday, and it was in Los Angeles. Why not announce it there? Why not do it when you have diehard fans? Because you had to be a diehard to watch that card. I'll talk more about that later in the episode. Um, why not announce it there? You know, it just doesn't make sense to me. This is Super Bowl week. If, if, if the point was to do it during Super Bowl week, why not do it closer to the Super Bowl? Why not do it at a, a, a prime time? You know, a time where there's peak traffic going around on social media. Don't quite get it. Uh, didn't quite have the same bang as the announcement of the original fight, right? Which was just after the fight between Canelo and and Chavez, and it was right in the ring. You guys remember the whole theatrics with Golovkin walking to the ring and all that kind of stuff. That was a bang. This was like a little poof, just a little poof, this announcement. So I don't love the announcement or the way it was handled, but here's the sneaky genius of this announcement and why I think they're doing it this way. The fight's May 5th. So you've got three full months now to promote this thing. You've got February, March, April. This announcement for the fight is just announcing that the fight signed, right? It, they didn't talk about venue. There's no mention of, you know, any possible undercard. And of course, all that stuff has to come way later. But now they're going to decide the venue. 
And of course, T-Mobile Arena is the leading candidate. I could say with 90% confidence, that's where it's going to go to Las Vegas. There is a small chance it could go to Madison Square Garden in New York. There's a snowball's chance in hell it could go to Arlington, Texas or somewhere else. Probably going to Vegas because money talks, right? But now you get to do a second announcement when the arena is chosen, when the venue's picked. Then you get to have that announcement. And then you get to have the announcement of, hey, we got the, the venue, the tickets go on sale on such and such date. There's a pre-sale here. So this announcement for the rematch is going to come in stages and it's gonna come in different forms of media. This was the social media announcement to get it out there, but then you're gonna have different forms of media, television commercials, streams, all kinds of stuff, announcing the different parts of the promotion in the card over the next month or so. So I expect the venue to be announced in the next two to three weeks. It'll be a, definitely be announced by the end of February, probably the middle of February. And to be honest, I knew that this fight was official last week. Uh, I, I filmed episodes of 10 Count for Undisputed Champion Network. And, uh, you know, Doug Fisher was there at the Golden Boy offices and saw Gennady Golovkin walk in and fill out the paperwork. So we knew it was official a week ago, obviously couldn't say anything, but um, we, we knew 99.9% .9 it was official, okay? We didn't know 100%, but we actually filmed an episode of 10 Count announcing the fight, even though it wasn't officially announced yet. So uh, we did all that last week, just to put that out there. So I can't really get into crazy details about the venue and what's going on with all that, but that's gonna be sorted out within the next three weeks or so. So by mid to late February, we will have a venue announcement. And again, that's the sneaky genius of doing the announcement this way. Possibly on the Superfly card. The timing right there would be perfect to do that announcement. So I'm just gonna put that out there. Okay, now I tweeted today, I asked you guys if you'd like me to do a uh, rant video about the PBC on Showtime schedule that was released last week. They gave a schedule with cards starting uh, February all the way through June. And most of you said, yeah, go ahead and do it. So I'm going to go ahead and do that uh, later this week. I'll, I'll, I'll drop that where I get into detail about the schedule, but I wanted to talk about it briefly here. So I've been telling you guys really for the last, well, since PBC became a thing, but really for the last year, that the money has dried up with putting fights on regular television and those deals and contracts have dried up. So you're going to get a bigger uh, schedule, a more stacked schedule on the front end of the year from PBC on Showtime because Showtime's budgets opened up and they could put up that money. And Showtime or PBC has deals worked out, obviously with Showtime putting up money, but also with Barclays. So you get the guaranteed money there. And that's why the first quarter, second quarter schedule for PBC and for Showtime last year was much stronger than the third and fourth quarter. We're probably gonna see the same thing this year. So I like some of the fights that they announced. They announced 10 different fights and it's a mixed bag. Some of it's really, really good. Some of it's not so good, right? But mixed bag. Um, I'm not gonna go into detail here. I'll wait for the rant video, but Obviously, I liked the the fight I like the most is Deontay Wilder and Luis Ortiz. Um, that is the best fight because it's the best fight of Deontay Wilder's career so far. It's the best opponent he has faced. It's also the best opponent by 
far that Ortiz has faced. Neither of these guys has really fought a murderer's row. Ortiz has fought the better opposition so far as a, as a pro heavyweight, but not by much compared to Wilder. And that's saying something, right? That's saying something. But as much as I love this fight, and I do love the fight, and, and I, I'm excited to see it. I really, really am. And by the way, VADA testing all the way. Um, fighters are volunteering. I'm not just talking about clean boxing program. They're volunteering for full VADA testing. So good to go on that. Um, you know, everything's on the up and up. Good. There's a lot of things I don't love about that fight in terms of the business side of it. So for one thing, they announced it seven weeks out. Seven weeks to promote the biggest fight of the biggest fighter you have in your stable's career. Deontay Wilder is probably the PBC's biggest star, right? You could say Keith Thurman, you could say Errol Spence, but are they really bigger stars than Deontay Wilder? I don't think so. I mean, on paper, potential-wise, Wilder should be the biggest star in PBC. This is the biggest fight of his career, the best opponent of his career, biggest stage of his career. And you announce the fight seven weeks out. Not only that, you do it in Brooklyn at Barclays. And I know there's that guaranteed money in and you can paper. They're going to get 12, maybe 15,000 in there. It's going to be papered like they, they, they have a deal. They have a contract workout with the owners that own Barclays, the company that owns Barclays. So they're going to go there for guaranteed money for those bigger fights. Like I've told you guys that multiple times, right? I, I understand all that. But why on March 3rd? Why on March 3rd when just across the river in the city at Madison Square Garden, main events has a card going on that's going to be on HBO? Now, the main event of that card's trash. Sergey Kovalev is getting another layup opponent. This is going to be... Uh, Shabransky 2.0, right? He's fighting some Ukrainian guy who I think is now based in Germany. Uh, it might be Russian, don't quote me. But it's, it's, it's a no-hoper. It's a layup. But the co-main in that card, Dimitri Bivol defending his title against Sullivan Barrera, that is the best fight of the weekend. That is a much better fight, in my opinion, than Wilder Ortiz. Wilder Ortiz is the biggest fight because it's heavyweights, it's the, the great American hope, uh, the biggest star in PBC's universe, all the things I said before, right? So that's the biggest fight. But I think the best matchup, the best fight, is between Bevel and Barrera. That's the fight I'm most excited about. And main events announced that card months ago, weeks ago, right? Well over a month ago. They've been selling tickets for weeks now, and I know the publicist that's working for main events right now, Gail Falkenthal, she, she comments on the channel all the time. She's, she said that tickets are selling great. I know um, there's been multiple people I've talked to that said tickets for that show are selling great. They're doing a very good job selling those tickets. So why would you put this fight with Wilder and Ortiz, which is a great fight, why would you put it in the same market on the same day for a fight and a, a card going up head-to-head -head against a card that is already established and selling well. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense when you just as easily could have put it a week before, a couple weeks after, something like that, uh, on a weekend where there's less traffic and, and not in the same market, man. It, so beyond all the ethical stuff about going head-to-head -head and you know, how you feel about that boxing fans i think don't mind it because you guys can set your dvrs and you can watch both fights i understand that and you're probably going to want to see the heavyweight fight live 
and watch the replay of the HBO card. I get that. So boxing fans don't really care about this. But I'm saying from a brand building business perspective, when I talk about promotion and I talk about the issues with PBC when it comes to promotion, here is just another example of that. And I, you know, for the life of me, I just can't understand what their thinking is. Main events isn't a direct competitor. They're a, they're a mid-level promoter. They don't have any big, big stars. They don't put on big, big shows, but they have been in the business for decades and they know what they're doing, especially in that market. They are based over there in the Northeast. They know what they're doing in that market. They know how to do uh, shows well there and, and do profitable shows there. So, you know, I, I don't think that Heyman and, and PBC are going head to head against main events and trying to do something nasty or shady. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just thinking that they chose the wrong date, the wrong venue and the wrong date to put this fight on. Uh, it's one thing if main event show wasn't announced yet or something like that, but it's been announced forever. So when it normally I wouldn't care about any of this, but when Deontay Wilder was quoted a month or so back, I think it was boxing scene that did a story, uh, an interview where he said that, you know, I don't get any love because of my demographics. Um, you know, because of my race, my ethnicity, whatever, the, the mainstream fans, the sports fans in America don't support me. It's racism, blah, blah, blah. You know, all these things. It's not. That's not the issue. And everything I just described to you about putting that fight on March 3rd in a market that already has an established card, that is an example of the poor promotion this guy's getting. And it's a mixed bag. There's several people that are responsible. And Deontay Wilder is a complicated situation. He has a lot of people managing his career. A lot. And there's, there's a lot of fingers in that pot, man. So I, I kind of almost feel bad for him. But I can't feel bad for him when he makes idiotic statements like that. That are divisive, dangerous, and untrue. And the way that the biggest fight of his career is being handled and promoted is just an example, the latest of many examples, why he isn't a big star. And it has absolutely nothing to do with where the guy's ancestors come from. That being said, it is my favorite fight on all of this. There are a couple of these fights on the Showtime schedule here that I think will be in Los Angeles. I know the Leo Santa Cruz, Abner Mara's rematch. I mean... The first fight was pretty good. I think the rematch would be entertaining, but I'm not that excited for it. But that's at Staple. I think it's at Staples in Los Angeles. That's right down the street. I can hop on the subway and be there in two seconds. Like so, I'll go check that out. Also, Jamel Charlo's on that card, so I'll definitely check that out. And I love that Errol Spence's June 16th fight, which is probably going to be against Carlos Ocampo. I love that that's in Dallas. I've been screaming that this kid needs to fight in Dallas more. I love that they put that in Dallas. So there's a lot to like with this schedule. As I said, I will do a rant video talking more about it in detail. Okay, one last item here. Um, and, it, and it relates. It relates to everything I was just talking about. Anthony Joshua, Joseph Parker. They fight at the end of March, March 31st. Four weeks after uh, Wilder Ortiz. They have already sold 70,000 tickets. Now, I get it that AJ's a big star. He sold 70,000 plus tickets fighting Carlos Takam. And before it was Carlos Takam, it was supposed to be Kubrat Pulev. He could fight a cab driver. He could fight me and sell 70,000 tickets in five minutes. I get that. But that fight is what, two months away from right now? The tickets are sold, but watch Eddie Hearn continue to promote the hell out of this thing. 
and build it up to where the secondary market on those tickets is going to go nuts, right? But more than that, they're going to build up the pay-per-view ratings. They're going to build the hype up. It's going to be more than just a boxing event. It's going to be a sporting event because of the promotion of Eddie Hearn. I get it. You got to have the talent. You got to have the horse. You got to have something to promote, right? I understand all that. And there's a built-in fan base and all that. Gotcha. But they're not just taking the 70,000 tickets sold for granted. They're not just expecting it. They've already sold those tickets. And for the next two months, they're going to continue to promote the hell out of this thing as if only 1,000 tickets have been sold. Watch the difference in these two promotions. And then you tell me why Deontay Wilder isn't a bigger star right now. And if it has anything to do with the guy's ancestry. All right, that's it for news and notes right now. Let's get into the review of what took place last week. Last Saturday in Riga, Latvia, Oleksandr Usyk improves to 14-0 with 11 knockouts, scoring a majority decision victory over Marius Bredis, unifying the WBC and WBO cruiserweight titles. This was a fantastic cruiserweight fight. I'm not going to put it up there with Holyfield, Kwai or something like that, but it was a very, very good, solid scrap. And uh, to date, it's probably the best fight we've had in this early 2018. So um, I, I thought, for me, Bredis, I think a lot of us were selling him short. And, you know, I didn't expect Usyk to walk all over him and dominate. I thought it'd be a very competitive fight halfway through. But then I just thought Usyk's quality would win out over the second half of the fight. And he'd pull away and win a eight rounds to four, maybe even nine rounds to three type of decision. That's what I expected. I expected a fairly decisive win by Usyk. And he barely squeaked by. And he really had to pull it out in the late rounds. And both dudes were making adjustments in there. So I was very, very impressed by Bredis. But I was also very, very impressed by Usyk and for different reasons. Uh, this was the fight of the weekend, right? This was the best fight of the weekend on paper and in terms of what we saw. No American television. No American television at all. And the problem with this whole thing, and I know the Sauerland brothers are involved and everything, but it's also a Richard Schaefer deal, the World Boxing Super Series. And Richard Schaefer burned so many bridges with the power brokers in American boxing that I don't know if the guy's ever going to be able to get something massive like this on American television. It's possible if this thing really, really goes off and the tournament continues to be as good as it has been, maybe they can work something out if they try to do another one in a year or so. But the people at HBO, Peter Nelson doesn't want to go near Richard Schaefer because of how nasty he did Golden Boy promotions. And they have a big, big link. They work a lot with Golden Boy. Canelo Alvarez, big, big star. They want in on that business. They don't want to rub or uh, burn any bridges themselves. Peter Nelson and HBO. So I don't see him going there. I know that Richard Schaefer tried to get things worked out with Showtime. I know Al Heyman, who isn't exactly a huge fan of Richard Schaefer these days. Um, not that they have beef or anything like that, but there is a history there. Uh, Al Heyman tried to put the kibosh on that. And, and Showtime is bought in with the PBC business and Al Heyman right now. That's where their money and their attention is focused. So they get priority 
over Richard Schaefer and everything he's trying to do at, at what is it called? World Star Boxing or something, this new promotional company. So because of that, even some ESPN, an entity like ESPN, they have a deal with Top Rank that's going to last for years. They still have a deal with Golden Boy. I don't know how much longer that deal is going to go, maybe another year or so. I'm not sure if that's going to continue on past that. But their attention is with Top Rank. And that's they have stars there with Bud Crawford and Lomachenko that they're, they're riding with. So for Richard Schaefer, I, I just don't know where he goes for American TV. All that being said, why can't we get a stream of this thing? World Boxing Super Series, work it out on your website. The millions and millions of dollars you're putting into this thing, spend the money. Get your website up and running. They have a lot of good material up on the site. Uh, they're always posting news and notes and all kinds of stuff up there. Cool. There should be a live stream of every fight on your freaking website. Now, apparently, they're doing stuff on their social media. I know on YouTube, they had a stream of the undercards. For some reason, they didn't stream the main event. Not that I saw. And I think it was the same thing on their Facebook page. Number one, you got to promote that. You got to tweet about it. You got to get people talking about it. You got to get guys like us in the media talking about it. You need to be more transparent with us to let people, fight fans in America, know what's going on with that stuff if you're going to do it. But more than that, the, the fights need to be right there on the homepage of your website. And all of your social media needs to direct everybody there. I understand that you might get crashed that way. Then maybe you want to do it on multiple platforms. Do it on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, all that. Do streams on all those, but also have it on your site so that there's one place people always know they can go to to watch these fights. That needs to be fixed because the stream that I found was a Russian stream. It was hard to find any stream. The first round or so, most fight fans and media too, we were passing around streams. I mean, there were several guys... Yeah, I won't name names, but guys that you know, that you follow their work. We were passing each other stream links on Twitter, on Facebook, on text. I was getting blown up on my phone with text of, of uh, links to streams because they were so hard to find. And that's a shame. If we got, you know, I'm supposedly in the know somewhat because I work in boxing media, right? What, how hard would it be for a fan? If you're a 15-year-old kid who just got into boxing and you want to watch this, how hard is it going to be for that kid to find a stream if I can't freaking find one? Actually, he probably would find it easier because he probably would know a lot more about the internet than I do. But anyway, all right, back to the fight. Usyk started a little tight to me. You know, in the lead up to this fight, you know, in the interviews, he was saying, I am very feel, I am feel, which I, I think it was a mistake. You know, some reporter asked him, how do you feel? And he responded, I am very feel. That's going to turn into his version of Golovkin's, you know, he is good boy, big drama show. I think that's going to be Usyk's thing. And I got to say, it's pretty cool that some of these Eastern European fighters are trying to learn English and trying to do interviews in English. And when they have these responses in broken English, these little phrases are perfect for social media. And they become sayings among diehard fight fans. I saw a bunch of tweets with the hashtag, I am feel, I am very feel. I saw there was a remix video, like a, a music video of it that somebody did that was going around. Genius. Even if the I am feel, even if that thing was like premeditated, I'm not saying it was, but I'm just saying, even if his promoter said, hey, hey, 
make up some expression, do some broken English expression, even if it was on purpose and it was all acting, it's genius. And fighters from other parts of the world that don't speak English but want to come to America and fight and fight on American television in front of American fight fans for American money, take a page out of these guys' book. Try to learn English. Don't be so scared about if you screw up and you say something wrong because you might answer a question wrong. Like if somebody asks you how you feel and you say, I am feel, I am very feel, that could turn into a huge marketing thing for you. We look at Golovkin with the big drama show. I mean, even the, the HBO crew use that expression now. It's become a thing for him, right? So I think more fighters from other parts of the world, particularly Latin America, particularly Mexico, need to take a page out of some of these guys' book. And other fighters, you know, look, look, would Manny Pacquiao have ever become the crossover star he was had he not learned English and went on the Jimmy Kimmel show and sang horribly on that show and did duets with like Will Ferrell and stuff? No. So, so just take a page out of that book and try, man. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, Usyk was very feel. I think he was a little amped up and he looked a little tight. Fighting on the road in Latvia, um, the, the fans showed up for Bredis, who's uh, the most accomplished boxer ever to come out of that country. He's perhaps the most accomplished athlete ever to come out of that country that you know I could think off the top of my head, at least in recent years, right? Uh, in a sport like boxing, in a combat sport. So um, started a little tight. I was surprised and impressed to see Bradis land hard jabs and counter punches on Usyk early. Early on, I mean, I, I those of you who follow me on Twitter, you saw it. I was like, man, Bradis won that first round. Bradis probably won that second round. I got Bradis up early. I wasn't expecting it to, 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 for him to land as cleanly and sharply as he was early on. I was really, really impressed. Usyk started to make adjustments, though, in the middle rounds and started to come forward more. Instead of just trying to stand outside and pot shot, he started to come forward and almost became more of a pressure fighter and uh, was throwing punches at mid-range, going to the body, mixing up his shots real good, which is something he does a good job of, but he does it outside. Him going in and doing that and pushing Bredis back, I was impressed by that. And for Bredis, he responded to that and he was landing some counter punches and he was landing with these offensive flurries and these little bursts. He hung tough. I was impressed by him. And it sort of started to turn into a cruiserweight version of the Canelo Golovkin fight where you had the house fighter, the home or hometown fighter, I should say, and Canelo in Vegas is a hometown fighter. Um, doing backing up more, but getting more done with power punches. And then you had another fighter controlling the tempo and the pace and the distance more so with his jab coming forward more, pressing the fight. So one guy landing more jabs, the other guy landing more power punches maybe, or at least getting more done with his power punches. Um, that's what it was turning into. And it was, which style did you prefer? The difference in the fight was, I thought Usyk closed the show better than Golovkin did against Canelo. And uh, by the way, you guys know I, I had Cane or Golovkin beating Canelo in their fight. So, uh, but I, I had Usyk pulling this fight out. And I thought that, you know, he, he had to come back from a bigger hole. You know, I thought Golovkin uh, gave up a, f a couple early rounds to Canelo in their fight, but really owned the middle rounds. 
there was a lot more back and forth in this fight between Usyk and Bredis. And I would love to see a rematch after this tournament's done. I think that that's what needs to happen. Uh, for Usyk now, Unifies the titles, as I said, will be in the finale May 11th in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. So he moves forward. But for Bredis, man, his stock did not go down at all. In fact, I think his stock rose. I knew him and a lot of us knew him as a chief sparring partner for Vladimir Klitschko and Vitaly Klitschko. And I just thought that maybe he had that kind of mentality because he kind of fought down to the level of his opposition in some fights and looked more like a sparring partner to me. But in this fight, he looked like a world-class fighter and he's still a top five cruiserweight in my opinion. Later on last Saturday here in Los Angeles, specifically in Inglewood, which is just outside of Los Angeles at the Fabulous Forum, it was Golden Boy Promotions putting on a doubleheader. It was HBO's Boxing After Dark, uh, their kickoff to 2018. And in the first fight, Jorge Linares wins a unanimous decision over Marcito Gesta, defends his WBA lightweight title. He got a little cut over his right eye, I believe, in the eighth round from punches. Uh, look, this wasn't a very, very good fight. It was pretty dull, pretty boring. Um, the fans there felt it was, and they, they, they booed a little bit. For Gesta, Hesta, Gesta, however you say it, the Filipino fighter, um, he had, you know, he, had, he worked with Freddie Roach for this fight, who used to work with Linares, so he kind of knew him. So there was that angle going in. But I didn't think this fight would be remotely competitive. Gesta, to me, is a good gym fighter who serves as a good sparring partner for elite-level opposition. Anytime he has stepped up, he fought Miguel Vasquez several years ago. And I talked about this. I did a ringside recap video. Look for that and watch it. Um, he, that, he, he got exposed in that fight as what he is. And this fight, he did just enough to make Linares look good, but not look great. He hung tough. He had little bursts and little moments, but he never had Linares really thinking about anything you know, uh, serious, right? And this is how, when I say sparring partner mentality, here's an example of it. Anytime Linares landed something big that backed Gesta up or really got his attention, snapped his head back, he kind of gave the nod like, you got me, yeah, but you didn't hurt me, you know, that kind of nod, but he wouldn't return fire. He was just like, yeah, good, all right, back up, reset, come back in, take some more shots. If you're in a real fight and you're really trying to win and you're really letting it all hang out, when somebody tags you like that, you might nod and say, yeah, you got me, but your first impulse is to return fire, to get him back, because he just got you. He just kind of, he just got you, and there's cameras, and there's people watching. You know, everyone saw him get you. You want to get him back, especially in front of the judges, right? I guess it wasn't doing that. Now, he had his little moments where he'd come forward and land some flurries and stuff, but it was nothing significant, and this fight just wasn't that great. Look, for Jorge Linares, who now figures to be in the Vasil Lomachenko sweepstakes, there are a lot of people over the last few years who have been putting this guy on their pound-for-pound pound list or putting him on the bubble for the pound-for-pound pound list or calling him an elite-level special fighter. And I'm one of those people that just has said, no, I don't believe that. And I get some crap from some people for saying that, but I think now people are starting to wake up and realize it. Look at this guy's resume. Just look back at the people he's fought. 
You have to go back to, I think, 2011, 2010, when you fought guys like Antonio DeMarco, Juan Carlos Salgado, where he was fought some, I wouldn't even call those guys elite, but they were top level, A level, you could say, in those divisions at that time, fighters. And he had mixed results against those fighters. Um, but you look past then, it's been a lot of second tier opposition. Now, I'll give Linares credit, he has stamped his passport. He has gone to Japan. He has gone to the UK. He has fought in different continents, different parts of the world. I give him a lot of credit for that. He's a fun fighter to watch when he's matched correctly. Against a guy like Gesta who's going to do just enough to survive. I said this in an episode of 10 Count, previewing the fight. In terms of mentality, Mercito Gesta is a lightweight Filipino version of Malik Scott. For those of you who know who Malik Scott was, very skilled heavyweight fighter, sparred with everybody. I think he sparred back with Lennox Lewis when he was still fighting. Sparred with the Klitschko's, everybody. But when he would get in the ring against elite level opposition, he just fell flat. He was a sparring partner. Guest is the same kind of guy. You put him in, uh, if, you, if you have a gym, if you're a trainer with a lot of young prospects, you want a dude like that in your gym. Kind of like Vanas Martirosian, same way. A guy like that, maybe one day he could be a good trainer, but just not at the top level. And for Linares, he was never going to look good against him, right? But this served as good sparring to prepare him for Lomachenko. Now look, Lomachenko is moving to 135 pounds. He has a fight coming up in the spring. Linares did suffer a cut. Do I think that we get Lomachenko-Linares right away in April or, or May, I think it is, when uh, Lomachenko comes, comes back? I don't know about that. These things usually take time. I think it might happen later this year. But when it does happen, I like Lomachenko big. The only reason why that fight is somewhat interesting to me is because Linares is the number one lightweight in the world right now. He's the most proven lightweight. And by the way, he's more proven than Mikey Garcia was at lightweight. How many fights did Garcia have at lightweight? One? Was it one or two? I can't remember. Against B-level opposition, and then he left the division. So... Linares is still the most proven, solid, lightweight in the world. We know it's not Robert Easter, right? Based on what we've seen from him recently. So it is the number one guy. And if Lomachenko was moving up in weight again to fight the number one guy in the division, sign me up. I'm there. He tried to do it at 130 pounds. Nobody at 130 pounds wanted him. Nobody at 126 wanted him. <clears throat> so if he does it at lightweight... He fights Linares. I'm there. I think that that's a fun fight. But obviously, I like Lomachenko big. Now, in the main event, Lucas Matisse scores an eighth-round KO over Tiwa Karam. Matisse looked pretty bad in this fight. He looked pretty bad, okay? This was for a vacant WBA title. The WBA, in their disgusting, just, ugh, had to get a sanctioning fee from this. And they worked with Golden Boy to make that happen. And now Matisse can say he's a two-way champion. Absolute trash. He's not. This wasn't a title fight. Kiram was a big, physical Thai fighter who fought like a little puppy. He did give Matisse some trouble early on with his distance. He worked behind a good jab. Wasn't really jabbing with authority, but just the length on it was giving Matisse problems. Matisse was hitting a lot of air early on. But in the middle rounds, Matisse started to vary up his attack, jab his way in more, go to the body a little bit. And started to land some shots. Nothing significant, nothing big, but he landed a couple of good shots. Then in the eighth round, 
Um, he drops Kiram with the jab. There was a one-two, but the, the right hand was very glancing. It barely touched Kiram, and Kiram was already going down from the jab. Kiram gets up and looks, gives the appearance that he's fighting back. He throws a bunch of hard shots like he's fighting back. Then he's on the ropes, and Matisse lands a counter jab. It's a good, strong jab. Then there's a delayed reaction, and Kiram basically takes a knee and pretends he's too hurt to get up. It looked really, really suspect. Really suspect. And to me, do I? You know, people are saying, oh, it was fixed, and Golden Boy paid Karam to take a dive in the eighth. I don't believe in that. You guys know I don't do conspiracy theories. I saw a guy who looked frustrated and was looking for a way out of there. That's what I saw. So uh, Batiste gets this win. He's now 2-0 since the knockout loss to Postal back in 2015. But the fight against Emmanuel Taylor, which he looked good in last year, Taylor was faded past his best, I believe, coming off a couple losses in recent years. Maybe he had won a tune-up layup going into that fight or something, but he had lost a couple fights. Um, was not the same guy he was early on. And that was just perfect matchmaking for Matisse. And this fight, man, just didn't look good. Now, there's rumors that he might fight Manny Pacquiao. He might be in the sweepstakes for that fight. Uh, man, he wants to come back. Would I welcome it? Sure. But if it's on pay-per-view, do any of you want to see that? Matisse looked like crap in this fight against a journeyman that hopefully never comes back to American television because of the way he disgraced himself in the eighth round. Um, Pacquiao just lost to Jeff Horn. Controversial or not, and I felt Pacquiao won that fight. It's still a loss. Hasn't fought since. Do any of you want to see Pacquiao and Matisse? Either way, if that happens, I favor Pacquiao. Uh, if Matisse, <coughs> Matisse were to fight somebody like Terrence Crawford, that would end very, very badly for him. That's it with the review of what happened last week, guys. Not a whole lot of action, but we got a lot of stuff to review for this week. Let's, let's get to it. Okay, so Friday, February 2nd, there is a showbox card from Winnevegas Casino in Sloan, Iowa. In the main event, Ronald Ellis going up against Junior Yonan. Ellis is 14-0, 10 knockouts for Massachusetts. He has 50 pro rounds under his belt, 29 years old. Yonan is 13-0 with 9 knockouts out of Brooklyn, 32 pro rounds, 22 years old. Managed by James Prince, a lovely, lovely individual. Horrible opposition. So obviously I favor Ellis big in that fight. Showbox is always fun, man. Always fun. Good platform to build prospects up on. Saturday, February 3rd. We got a lot of action to talk about. So let's start in London. Eddie Hearn is actually putting on a little card over there. In the main event, Ted Cheeseman going up against Carson Jones. I believe this is on Sky. Uh, Cheeseman's 12-0. He's a 140-pounder. Uh, prospect undefeated Jones is coming off a loss last September you might remember that name to Antonio Margarito in Mexico that was a fight where he was down on the cards I believe but coming on and giving Margarito problems and then there was a quick stoppage when Margarito cut himself a lot of people thought it was a little home cooking with that stoppage so that's over in London here in America in Corpus Christi Texas top rank on ESPN is putting on a card uh, headline with Gilberto Zerdo Ramirez fighting Habib Ahmed for the third defense of his WBO title. 
Zerto is 36 and 0 with 24 knockouts. When is he going to fight somebody worth with a pulse? You know, talk about smoke and mirrors of a resume. This guy has a title, and I get it that he's very, very marketable. Uh, 26 years old, six foot two, good-looking Mexican kid, but he seems to be all sizzle and no steak. I, I mean, I like some of the things he does, but I haven't seen any improvement. And when you look at his career, Fulgenica Zuniga is one of his better opponents. Max Bursak, Jesse Hart, who gave him some trouble in his last fight, and ancient Arthur Abraham. I just, not a lot here. Now, I, the Arthur Abraham fight, I'll give him credit for. At that time in his career, a good quality win. But since that point, resume's poor. I, this fight is crap. I'm sorry. Ahmed is from Ghana. He's 25 and over 17 knockouts against woeful opposition. The fight I'm excited for on this card, Jerwin Ancajas, the Filipino fighter who really, really hit the scene, burst onto the scene in late 2016 with his unanimous decision victory over McJoe Arroyo to win the IBF Super Flyweight title. He's going up against a Mexican fighter, Israel Gonzalez, for the fourth defense of that IBF title. Uh, Ancajas is 28-1-1 with 19 knockouts. As I mentioned, he's a Filipino guy. 26 years old, southpaw, 5'6", 66-inch reach. Co-promoted by MP Promotions, Manny Pacquiao's company, and Top Rank. Uh, Gonzalez, I don't know much about this guy. A layup opponent, yes. 21-1 with 8 KOs. He's a Mexican. This is his first bout outside Mexico. The thing with some of these Mexican dudes, though... It's, it's sometimes it's like the Thai fighters, the 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 uh, Colombian fighters. These guys come out of these countries with these shiny records, undefeated or close to it. As I mentioned, um, Gonzalez does have one loss, but sometimes they're they're quality. And with Mexico, it's hard to say. A lot of these guys don't have amateur backgrounds. They learn on the job. They take a few losses early on. They get over here in a big opportunity, and they look good. They look real tough, real tough, right? Same thing with some of the Japanese dudes, the Thai fighters. Look at Rungvisai. Took some losses early on in his career, right? So obviously, though, I'm not expecting that from Gonzalez. I like Ancajas big. Here's the thing. Ramirez, in his fight, should score a big, big knockout. Should be a highlight reel type knockout. Let's see. Can he do that against Habib Ahmed? Jerwin Ancajas should Big, big win. Big, big knockout against Israel Gonzalez. Let's see if he could do it. My prediction is Ramirez kind of doesn't meet expectations. Ancajas succeeds them. There's something to Ancajas. I think he might be the next guy to come out of that part of the world that uh, everybody wants to see. Also, undefeated prospects like uh, Teofimo Lopez, Jose Benavides, they're on this card. Jesse Hart is on the card. He put up a great effort against uh, Ramirez in, in both their last fight. Those fights, their fights on the undercard, I believe will be airing on ESPN News before the main card on ESPN starts. So I love that top rank with this ESPN platform is doing things like that. I wish HBO, the boys, you know, Peter Nelson and the crew would start doing more of that kind of stuff. Okay, the big fight this weekend is in the Bolshoi Ice Dome in Adler, Russia. Murat Gassiev against Unier Dortikos, unifying the IBF and WBA titles. Obviously, this is for the World Boxing Super Series, uh, the semifinals. The winner of this will fight against Oleksandr Usyk in the final. Gassiev, 25-0 with 18 knockouts. 
you know, they list him at 6'3", 6'4", depending on which publication you look at. When I've seen him in person, he feels shorter than that. He looks more like a 6'2 to me. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how big he looks against Dortico's, who is listed as 6'3 as well. But uh, Gassiev has a 76-inch reach. He's only 24 years old. He looks a lot older, but he doesn't turn 25 until October. So he's a young 24 years old. This will be the second defense of his IBF Cruiserweight title. You look at the, the fighters he has fought. Denis Lebedev, Christoph Vlodercek, both were faded, but still top 10 fighters when he faced them. And for um, just the experience he gained in those two fights, I think was big for him. And I think there's massive upside with Gassiev, who trains up at uh, at the summit in Oxnard, California with Abel Sanchez and Gennady Golovkin and the crew. And Sanchez is huge on Gassiev. Dortico's 22-0, 21 knockouts, 6'3", 80-inch reach, has the longer arms, has freakishly long arms. Uh, his Cuban fighter, comes from that school, 31 years old, reported as having 257 amateur fights. So he has that amateur pedigree that Gassiev does not have. Gassiev is learning on the job as a young pro. Uh, this is the first defense of his WBA title. And he looked awesome in dispensing Dmitry Kudryashov in the opening round of the World Boxing Super Series. And a lot of people, including myself, were looking at this as possibly a 50-50 fight. But I got to tell you guys, the more I've thought about this fight and the more I look at Dortico's resume, his best wins are over Edison Miranda, former middleweight. Remember Edison Miranda? An ancient Edison Miranda who had lost six of his previous nine coming into the fight with Dortico's. An ancient Fulgenica Zuniga, a guy that I talked a second ago, Gilberto Ramirez beat him as a super middleweight. But he was a former middleweight himself. He had lost seven of his last ten coming into his fight with Dortico's. And the very overrated Dmitry Kudryashov, who I just talked about in the opening round. That's his best three wins. They are not on the same stratosphere as Gassiev's wins or a faded but still very serviceable version of Denis Lebedev and Christoph Vlodercek. So when I look at quality of opposition, Dortico's, there's still a lot of questions there. And yes, he's got power, but he's got power against former middleweights and Dmitry Kudryashov. How will his power look against Gassiev? The way I see this thing, Gassiev is a slow starter. He needs to learn to start faster and start varying up his offense more and jabbing his way in more. I do think Dortico's will win some early rounds. I think his jab and movement will give Gassiev problems. But I do think by the middle rounds, Gassiev's going to start to chop Dortico's down. That's what I see happening. And I, I was leaning toward Gassiev by decision. And that still is probably the, the likely scenario. But I'm starting to feel Gassiev late TKO. And that's what I'm going to go with officially prediction-wise. I think Gassiev is going to make a major freaking statement in this fight. Matchmaking and timing is everything in boxing, guys. And if you look at who these two guys have been fighting the last year or so of their career, Gassiev has been doing the way better work. 
He's going to have to learn on the job in this fight. He's going to be down early, or I mean, down on the cards early. Wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility to see him put down on his butt early with a flash knockdown kind of thing. If he gets hit off balance, a shot he doesn't see, something like that. But I like him coming back, his pressure in the middle rounds, starting to work on Dortico's. I want to see him go to the body. I want to see him throw uppercuts. I want to see him vary the attack and use the jab more. I think he will. I think him and Abel Sanchez have been working on that, game planning for that. And I'm putting it down right now. He is going to stop Junior Dorticos in quite highlight real fashion. That's what I see happening. Also on this card, undefeated prospects, uh, Roman Andres, who's a lightweight. Mikel Oloyan, who's a bantamweight, who was, I think, a, a two-time Olympian, if I'm remembering correctly, are on this undercard. I don't know. Um, I think the undercard will be streamed on World Boxing Super Series YouTube page. I don't know about the main event. Hopefully it will be streamed on all their platforms. They learned their lesson from the last fight. Please, 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 because I'm excited for this one. Also Sunday, we have an Okinawa uh, card out of Okinawa, Japan. Daigo Higa, 14-0 with 14 knockouts, defending his WBC flyweight title, going up against Moises Fuentes. Fuentes is a Mexican fighter. Hasn't looked great recently. Lost two of his last three. He KO'd uh, journeyman in a comeback fight in October. Before that, he had lost two in a row. So obviously, I like he got big in that fight. He will defend that WBC flyweight title. And who knows? Maybe, maybe he can work his way into a super fly three card that we might see later this year, early next year. So that's it for this week, guys. Um, again, another reminder, please go to the podcast app, iTunes, and give us a review, a rating. Please, please, please. Okay, it takes you two minutes. We put a lot of work into this, a lot of time into this. And I'm asking for you guys. I love the support. Thank you for watching the show, for listening to the podcast. I'm asking you for a couple more minutes of your time to go and do that for us. That's it for this week. Let me know what you guys think. Comment below, like, share, subscribe. I'll see you at the fights.